Are we ready? Yeah. Hello. Welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex. I work for the Old Fire Station Arts Centre in Oxford, and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier Award winner Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises, answers to questions from listeners, and our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. Today we're talking about solo shows. Mike, what are we covering in the course? Well, the writers have had a week off and they've been thinking about their plays. So we're going to get into some of their individual ideas and we'll talk about those. I also wanted to do a few exercises about exploring a bit further the territory that you might be in and expanding that and expanding all the possibilities of what you can do with a play. Coming up at the Old Fire Station, when you listen to this on Friday the 16th, we will be in the middle of Offbeat Festival, which is our festival of new work that happens here at the Old Fire Station, out on Gloucester Green and Oxford Playhouse and the New Theatre. And that is going to be an absolute joy. We've got dance, we've got spoken word, we've got sound art, we've got everything. So look that up, offbeatoxford.co.uk. Then on the 21st of June, we've got Reese Nicholson, the Australian comedian. We've got Josie Long on the 23rd of June. We've got Drawing Club on Saturday, the 24th of June. And on that same day, we've also got Boys Night, which is a drag show for transmasculine and non-binary performers. And then on Sunday, the 25th, we've got Andrew O'Neill's Dead Leg Comedy Club. So we have an absolutely packed week here at the Old Fire Station and this is your last chance to apply for the role of CEO which expires on the 19th of June. Can I ask about Drawing Club? Yes. Is it a drawing club? It is. So it's actually made by two of our front of house staff, Lydia and Bethan, who were like, there's no drawing club in Oxford, let's make one. So it's in our cafe and they have a different theme for every session. Last one they had um, a model who is another one of our front of house staff who is a fashion designer and so she was modeling various fashion items that she's made amazing and then they were drawing her and they've put up the results on instagram and it looks brilliant that's great and can anyone turn just turn up yeah just turn up is it ticketed uh no you turn up and it's free that's brilliant great so today we're going to talk about solo shows David Benedict has written in the stage to say that he hates solo shows generally. I think actually whoever sub-edited his article has done him a bit of a disfavour because I think what he really hates is biographical solo shows. But the title of the article is I hate solo shows except when I don't. And it seems that it's quite rare for him to enjoy solo shows. He says that the problem is that they tend to be dramatically inert They lack counterpoint and rarely make a case for being on stage, which is interesting in terms of what we've been talking about on the podcast with dialectic, the idea that theatre is is the conversation that is happening right now. So I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on solo shows. You've written at least one play that is just for one person, Mrs Delgado. And then I've also got a list of my top solo shows that I can share if anyone's interested. It seems to me that David Benedict is taking plays and solo shows as two completely different things what's your take on that yeah well I think they are different things actually and I think his point about solo shows being dramatically inert is not always true I think you absolutely can create drama in a solo show but they do tend to emphasize the personal experience and an exploration of identity or mental health or psychology Anything that's centred around an individual, of course, lends itself to a solo show. And anything that has more than one person on stage perhaps lends itself more to a dialectic dialogue. And I think that those things are 
both completely valid, but it's interesting, I think, that we've had more solo shows as the focus in our whole society has tended towards looking at issues of identity and mental health and emotional health. And I think it reflects that. I think it also reflects the fact that it's cheaper to do a solo show and that there isn't much money at the moment. So for me, I think it's a completely valid form. It's just about being aware of why you might choose it. And I also love the idea of a solo show, actually. Some of the best storytelling shows, whether it's one or two people, conjure a whole epic landscape of many different characters, whether or not the actor actually plays them or not. They certainly describe them. When we did Mrs. Delgado, that has lots of other characters and it has a whole street of people. And it certainly has the stories between two different characters who are absolutely in dialectic and have different views and different opinions. So I think it's all possible. And actually, I often quite like telling an epic story with one person or telling an intimate story with lots of people. I think those seeming contradictions can be really full of interesting meaning. And when you wrote Mrs. Delgado, did you start that off thinking, I'm going to write a show for one performer? Was that a conscious decision? No, I started writing it as a story, which I think is why it's in the third person, actually. But inevitably, then it became, because I'm a playwright, the characters started talking more. (laughs) And there was more of that and less description. Well, then COVID happened. And I got quite into the idea of a storytelling piece. And I've always loved the idea of storytelling as well as being a sort of, again, it's a slightly different form to a play or even a solo show. The idea of just storytelling, just someone simply saying, we're going to sit here for an hour. I think that was one thing we did with Mr. Delgado was we realised it is a storytelling piece as opposed to a one-person show. There's not going to be a massive change of scene or somebody running around playing 10 different parts. We're going to just sit and concentrate and imagine for an hour and be told a story live. And we're going to lean into the simplicity of that. And we found that if we did anything too much, if the actor moved too much or we introduced props, we distracted us from the audiences using their imagination. I've always loved that form of a sort of storytelling thing. I think you can do anything with that form, actually. And as long as the audience knows early on, kind of like, this is it, like, buckle up, use your imagination. You know, you're not here for a big spectacle. Audiences can come out of those sorts of shows really involved and very moved because of the effort of imagination they've made. They feel like they've met all those people that you've described and they feel like they've seen a whole landscape of people, even though it's just words and it's just one performer. I think that can be incredible, really incredible. I agree. And I think the dialectic that David Bennett feels like he's missing there in the best solo shows actually happens with the audience. There is a counterpoint there. And that counterpoint is the audience. Yeah. And the other thing to say, actually, is that the stand-ups can be brilliant at this, whether it's Daniel Kitson, who does actual theatre shows, or Stuart Lee, or in a more sort of improvised way, Ross Noble. I've had, I feel like I've been really made to think by some of those stand-ups. They get dialectic sometimes by taking the audience down in one direction and getting everyone to agree with them up to a certain point, and then suddenly changing direction for both comic and argumentative impact to then go, actually, I don't believe this at all. And you've all come with me down there and now I'm going to go in this direction. And I think stand-ups become brilliant at making an audience work and think and feel uncomfortable. And I think the best ones have absolutely pushed stand-up into a place where it's totally art and potentially theatre and certainly storytelling. And I find it amazing. One thing I find really interesting is that stand-up on television is a big thing. And you'll sit in front of your TV and you'll watch one person on stage doing stand-up 
big audiences will watch this for an hour and a half and they'll have a really good time and they won't even think about it. But if you said, we're going to film a bit of theatre for an hour and a half with one person on stage and no scene changes, everyone would go, that feels like quite a niche art bit of work. And I think there's something in that that I'm trying to sort of figure out beyond, obviously, the intention of the stand-up is to make us laugh. But it feels like I kind of want to analyse that a bit more because they found a way to film live stand-up, which I don't think we found a way to film live solo shows or theatre yet. If we can unlock it, we could potentially really get access to theatre work. You know, like you were saying, we thought in COVID that filming work would be a release and we'd be doing it all the time. And that hasn't really happened. And actually, a lot of the shows found it's quite limiting to watch it on your laptop or you missed being there. I think there's probably more work to do to unlock that. But that's a separate point, really. Have you ever started writing something that you think is a solo show, but developed more characters or the other way around? No, but I do find any story I'm telling, if I limit it to going, right, I've got one actor or two actors, strangely, I find that easier to write. If someone said to me, here's the story you're going to write, but you've only got one actor, actually, I could almost start writing that story immediately because it's limited what you can do. And then you go, right, well, let's really work the actor. What can we do with that limitation? Whereas if you say you've got a cast of 25 to tell the story and you can do anything you want, I'd probably sit for months potentially trying to figure out what form it is. So actually, Sometimes I found that saying, right, I'm going to have a show with just two actors gets me going in terms of writing like much quicker. It's like it contains the energy, doesn't it, as well? It really focuses you down on what you're looking at and the sound of it and the words and listening, you know. Would you like to hear my top solo show recommendations? I would love to hear them. For David Bennett and listeners at home. So if you want to experience some really, really good solo shows, which there are many, and working in the fringe theatre world, as I do, I've seen a lot of them because it is cheaper and it is easier to do. And it can be an absolutely gorgeous medium. So I would recommend my number one, Salt by Selena Thompson, which is just fantastic. Every Brilliant Thing by Duncan Mamillion and Johnny Donahoe, which is available as a published playtext and as a recording. Class by Scotty. Scotty is incredibly influential in the solo show world. And actually, I now see a lot of shows and I think, ah, they've seen, they saw a Scotty show and now they, they're making their mm. own work. Mm. We Were Promised Honey by Sam Ward of Yes, Yes, No, No, who is really pioneering and makes really, really, really interesting solo work that uses the audience. So We Were Promised Honey, it's, it's him, the performer, he calls on the audience and the audience is is all the other actors, but in a very gentle way. And then Joseph Morpurgo Hammerhead, which is a slight outlier because it's technically comedy, but I actually think he didn't mean to, but he made a piece of theatre. It's only available as a recording. And I'll link to all of those in the show notes, but those are my, my top recommendations. I think you've seen more solo shows than I have by quite some way. Can you tell me what you think makes a great solo show or what are the moments of solo shows that you remember so visuals are so important like i think you're either going the kind of james roland route where there are no props or sets yeah. uh, and that's engaging in its own right but selena thompson in salt she has this sledgehammer and a giant pile of rock salt and the show is about her retracing the routes that slave ships took 
through African countries. Mm. And often people were used as labor to mine mm. this salt. So at every point right. she's using the these bricks of salt, she's smashing them with a sledgehammer. It's it's amazing and epic in a tiny, tiny way. And then you can have something like 15 Years of Granite, which was done here at Offbeat last year, which was one man and a microphone telling a ghost story. And what was amazing was he told it in the first person. And I knew he was an actor, but like, you're so into it. And then someone at the end, one of the audience members went over to him and she said, oh, that must have been really difficult for you to, um, to tell that story. And he was like, oh, it was fine. She went, no, no, but like, it must have been really hard for you to relive that. And he said, oh, it didn't, didn't actually happen to me. <laughs> I'm just an actor. Um, so you can have those really magical moments and you don't need a physical gimmick. You don't need to have that kind of the set, but you need that connection with the audience. So Selena Thompson and Salt is talking to us. Johnny Donahoe and Every Brilliant Thing is using members of the audience to tell the story by calling out numbers and asking them to stand up and say something that he's written for them. In Hammerhead by Joseph Morpogo, the idea is it's a post-show talk, but you haven't seen the play. So he's this beleaguered actor who's done a one-man Frankenstein and he's left question cards throughout the audience and at various points you have to ask your question but he knows what the question mm. is and he gives you his answer that dialogue with the audience i think is really key and if a show doesn't have that and it's not trying to draw you in it doesn't matter how many visual gimmicks it has you've it, they've got to be talking to you and it's got to be really intimate and emotional it's interesting to think about the position of the audience with these two different forms, the solo show and the not solo show, the more dramatic form if we want. We've got two actors on the stage who are in a scene with each other, concerned with each other. As an audience, you are sat outside of them. And I think you might feel like, well, that means I'm not taking part or I'm not, you know, it's not as live or it's not as, it's very different, that viewpoint. It means as a fly on the wall, I find that that means that perhaps my analytical or intellectual brain can do a bit more work because I'm not being spoken to. Whereas in a solo show, part of the joy of it is that you are part of it, aren't you? You're in dialogue with the performer often in some sort of way. And so you haven't really got a chance to kind of go, what does this mean? Or, you know, you, or you're doing less of that and you're more doing either imaginative work or you're doing more sort of enjoyment and interactive sort of work, aren't you? I've seen some great solo shows. I mean, you described them, they sound incredible. So I'm feeling like the poor traditional play <laughs> is sort of sat over here a bit neglected at the moment. And I, and I feel like I sort of want to give it its due. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's I'm sure it's doing fine and it's done all right over the last 2,000 years, hasn't it? It probably doesn't need defending. Yeah, I think it's time for some different art. The other thing a solo show can be, and I think this is not to be underestimated, is work can often be more radical the less it costs and the less people giving you notes. And so actually the solo show that you write and perform is the ultimate one of those, isn't it? It's ultimately, you just need a space and an audience and you can get up and do whatever the hell you want. And that's brilliant. That's so appealing, actually, as a, as a writer or a performer, especially when you've had processes where you've had a lot of notes and you feel like the work has been compromised in some way. The idea of just being so purely what you want to do is really appealing, isn't it? And it really feels like that's a place where you can say the unsayable or you can really push on an audience and look them in the eye and say something radical. So it sounds like we're pretty pro the solo show here. I'm definitely pro yeah, the solo I show. I think I am too. I think I am too. David Benedict, get out there. Watch my top five 
and then come back to see us. what you think. Yeah. Mike, what are our writing exercises this week? So this week, as I said, we're doing some exploring of the ideas that the writers might have and also kind of expanding the palette of what they can use. The sort of three exercises, I found them all useful in the past, but I thought also we might report back next week on one of them or a couple of them. The first one is to try and look at what your core beliefs are, because I think learning about that is quite interesting. A lot of writers have something that they always return to. Whatever they're writing about, they end up writing about the same old thing. (laughs) For me, I often end up writing about the way that capitalism dehumanizes us. Whatever I try and write about, there's always a bit of that lurks in there or sits underneath. So the exercise goes like this. You write at the top of the page, a dead dog was found in a bin. And then you write underneath that, why? And then you write underneath that, because, and then you leave a space. And then after your space, you write why. And then underneath that, you write because, and you leave a space again. And then do 10 whys and becauses, and then fill out that form. So you go, a dead dog was found in a bin. Why? Because a man put him in the bin that morning. Why? Because it died the night before. Why? Because he fed it the wrong food. Why? Because he wasn't thinking. Why? Because his wife had died. Why has his wife died? Because the health service wasn't good enough. Why wasn't the health service not good enough? Because the political system was broken. Why was the political system broken? Because no one cared. You know, it starts to very quickly reveal what your preoccupations are. And you've got to fill it out relatively quickly, a bit like I was doing there. And then your sort of instinctive concerns will come through. Don't think about it too much. It's not a creative writing exercise. It's more about revealing what your what your concerns are. And then you, you can actually then do take any image that's startling as your starting point. And I might encourage them to do that with a startling image from their play, because then it can generate story. Why did this happen because of this? Why did that happen because of that? So it can generate backstory. But it also might start to reveal, if they've got a startling image in their play, what is their play actually talking about? What's what might be lurking underneath it? So it's quite useful for that. Then I also want to, I realized I hadn't done this exercise and I think it's a really important one. It's very simple. It's not really an exercise, but we used to do it when I worked with the International Department at the Royal Court and we worked, did workshops in different countries. We used to put them in groups, you know, of three or four and they had to agree. And then we all combined it in one list. But it's what are the top 10 pressing issues in your country? And limiting it to 10 made it quite interesting about whether the whole group would sort of agree on that. And normally there's, some, there's, a, there's a top five they agree on and then the, the second five are sort of in dispute. But I realize we haven't done that. And I think it's an interesting thing to do because I think what you sometimes realize is that the things people are writing plays about are not the things on that top 10 list. Maybe they shouldn't be, but it's sometimes interesting that to ask why not. Why are we not writing plays about those things? Why are all the plays about this other subject, or or indeed not about very much, when this top 10 list of things are pretty pressing on us and concerning everybody? So I kind of want to do that, just to check in and see. I think it's an interesting point of discussion. And then finally, I want to do just write a list of the elements at your disposal when you write a play. There's obvious ones, which are actors and speech, but there's perhaps less obvious ones, like the movement of light, You know, how can light move across the space or the temperature in the room, the configuration of the audience, the makeup of the audience? Where do you get the audience? Who do you want your audience to be? You can design the audience as much as you can design the stage. So that's in your control. You can write anything at the beginning of your play that defines the parameters of how your play is performed. And I kind of want to slightly push on going a bit further than 
the ones we all think of when we think of, I'm going to write a play, into other concerns. And, and indeed, there might be things like just what the soundscape of the play is. I think just to check in again on that we've all considered all of these possibilities as storytelling devices, that not everything has to come through an actor saying it or an actor doing it. You can tell stories in lots of different ways on stage. And I certainly find when I'm writing a play, remembering that can be quite useful because as you write a play, it often narrows. When you get halfway through, the danger is that you're narrowing it down. You know, you think you know what your story is. The characters are all talking about, they're not talking about anything else. And actually, sometimes you want to make sure that not only is it being kept open all the way to the end, there's a lot going on all the way to the final moment in terms of story, but also that the world of it remains open and that the things you've set up, whether it's, you know, I'm I'm sort of, I suppose I'm thinking of Chekhov here, who does this a lot, but whether it's like in the seagull, the lake and the, the light and the moon and all of that stuff is so full of meaning and it is all the way through that play, or indeed the cherry orchard sits just outside what you see on stage all the way through. These are, these are big storytelling things you can do that aren't sort of actor-based, but are sort of world-based. Anyway, there's lots of things like that, and I want to just make a list so that we've got all the possibilities to hand. Okay, so questions. Emma asks, how can you be creative, but also if you're aware that you need to restrict, e.g., the number of characters and sets that you're doing because you know that you're writing something for a budget and you know that you can't necessarily go wild and have 20 people in it, how can you be creative within those limitations? Well, I would say that you've always got limits. They can inspire creativity and they can make you think, how do I tell this story in a different way? Or if I've only got the budget for three actors, do they double lots of characters? Do I tell an epic story with just three people in a room, but yet the imaginative, expansive monologues and stories or relationships are epic and huge? So I think maybe it's often there's there's a useful tension between doing the epic with a few actors. Actually, there's a tension in having a lot of actors doing something quite intimate and small, you know, like a lot of people in a lock-in in a pub or something. For me, it's seeing how those restrictions can both inspire you and create some sort of creative tension in the play. Robert has written in, do you have any tips specific to creating good comedy? In particular, I'm trying to get my head around the different forms of comedy, farce, highbrow, physical comedy, etc. My instinct is to build in multiple approaches to create a layered piece which will entertain in as many ways as possible. But are there forms of comedy which don't work well together, so should not be combined? Well, I don't know if I know enough about comedy writing to be that technical with it. There's a couple of things. One is that rhythm, the rhythm of something and the sound of it, the, the number of consonants and when you land them, and where the full stop is, and where the pauses are. And you can see this with stand-ups, and to reference Stuart Lee again, he takes it apart in his routines about how it's so much about the rhythm and the sound. And if you get that right, then the words are almost incidental in a way. And I've certainly found that, that if you get the rhythm wrong, it doesn't matter how clever or funny the words are, the audience won't laugh. And if you get the rhythm right, you almost can get away with it not actually being that funny. And the other thing I suppose that I've found is that and maybe this is about comedy in drama rather because I'm not really a, I'm not a comedy writer, but I have written sort of heightened forms that are designed to be funny. And I think that what I found though is the psychology needs to be still consistent. And this is true in performance. We all know that the moment an actor starts playing it for laughs rather than having some sort of psychological truth, it stops being funny actually. 
So I saw Reese Shearsmith in um, The Unfriend, Stephen Moffat's play, and he was just brilliant. And it was absolutely comedy stage acting, which you don't see so much of now. It had so much craft to it. In the past, there were a lot of stage comedies, and we don't really get that now. And we don't get TV studio sitcom anymore. So there's a whole sort of skill there that a lot of people don't really have. But it was a masterclass in that. But what was interesting, although it was quite sort of stagey in a way, like there were double takes and all this sort of stuff, it was all in service to the psychology of the character. It all came from the panic of the character or the anxiety or the, you know, you see John Cleese do it in 40 Towers. So I think it's the same rule that where's the character's head at? And then it's just exaggerating that to make it super clear or he's very anxious or or very panicky or very angry then it becomes funny because we recognize the truth of it i think whereas when it's just floating and it's like someone waving their arms a lot but you don't really understand why or someone coming in a door in a funny way then the audience smells that and it's not as funny i think the other thing about comedy i think that i've found and it's the same rule that i have when i had to write a best man speech which was I had some advice because I was worried about my best man's speech not being funny. And they said the advice was decide what you want to say in the speech and make the point. And then if it's funny along the way, that's a bonus, but at least you'll have made your point. And I think that that's true with plays, I find, is that if I make sure it's a play and it's got everything to it and the characters, what they want, and it has meaning and it has all the things we've talked about, if it happens to be funny along the way, then that's a great bonus. But generally, if I go towards writing a joke rather than telling the story or serving the characters, then it's not as funny as if it just occurs in the writing and following the truth of the characters, for me anyway. And have you ever written something you didn't know was funny until the audience laughed? Certainly my play Cock, it was done recently in the West End in a completely new production. It was done end on, whereas originally it was done in the round, done in a big theatre as opposed to a very, very small theatre. And the laughs came in different places. There were laughs in that play that I didn't know. And indeed, there were laughs in the original production that there weren't in the second one. And I think all the actors were completely after truth in both versions. But it made me think that sometimes in a play, you write the truth. And sometimes the emphasis of where the laugh can land comes out of the production or the performance or the intention in that moment. Do you know what I mean? Rather than I've written a joke here or I've written a joke there. It's more the situation and the dynamic of what the actors are playing in that moment. So that was really interesting. Lovely. Thank you. How to Write a Play is hosted by Mike Bartlett and Alex Coke. Editing and music is by Hannah Gallardo-Parsons and it's produced by the Old Fire Station, Oxford. Please support us by giving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.